Hello and welcome to another of the Sheldrake Vernon Dialogues with myself, Mark Vernon, and Rupert Sheldrake. Hi, Rupert. Hi, Mark. So we get together and um, try and have a conversation about something we've been thinking about or have heard about that's interested us um, to tease out um, as we can the subject and hopefully that inspires your thoughts as well. Um, and today, um, Rupert, I wanted to ask you about something you just mentioned, um, which was a new word even to me, um, and I wonder whether you could tell me something about it and then see where we go, um, which is um, the notion of eco-confession. Eco-confession. Now, I've got the sense that it's something to do with living in a time of ecological crisis, um, but perhaps you can say you know more about this idea. Well, the idea came up when I was talking to a friend in the summer on um, Cortez Island, Karen Mahong. And Karen Mahon is, uh, had just become a, an interfaith minister. She'd been ordained as one. She's also uh, one of Canada's leading ecological activists involved in campaigns to save rainforests, mm-hmm. like the Great Bear Rainforest, um, to stop pipelines through the tar sands and that kind of thing Um, so she's a very practical woman and she told me that uh, when people come to visit her they often start with a kind of confession about you know how many tons of carbon they've emitted in their plane uh, ride coming to visit her and then trying to justify it through you know saying well this is such an important meeting I felt it was Justified, and then uh, sort of, uh, as it were, confessing about their carbon emissions. And she told me this, she thought of this as sort of slight interruption to the conversation, or at least she wanted to get on with it. And, but actually, um, when we thought about it, we thought, actually, this could be something useful, because, you know, in Christian services, you start with a confession. And... Um, one of the purposes of confessions is to stop you going to d- denial about something. If you can't confess it, then you have to sort of repress it and you get into a state of denial. <coughs> and uh, right now, regular church services and where confessions do still occur in this somewhat ritualized form don't really address the ecological problem. I mean, people probably feel that these confessions are mostly about you know, being impolite to other people or being greedy or, you know, committing adultery or something like that. But actually, every single one of us is taking part in eco-hostile activities. I mean, how many single-use pieces of plastic have we discarded this week? You know, when I go out to fill our recycling bins, it's horrific the quantity, and we actually try to reduce plastic waste. Um, How many tonnes do we emit in in carbon footprint? One flight to North America and back, you know, say to California or Canada, where I go every year, is three or four tonnes of carbon emission. Well, when I did my carbon footprint calculations, just living at home with eco-friendly light bulbs and stuff is about four tonnes per year, Although I try and fly relatively little, my carbon footprints from flights are about six tons per year. So for people like you and me, the worst thing we do in terms of carbon emissions is flying and, and going around the world. Um, 
and people do it casually. I mean, because, oh, I'm going over to Australia for Christmas. You know, I hear these conversations all the time, as if it's just like going walking down the road sort of thing. It's become so commonplace. And in Sweden, Greta Thunberg has tried to raise up this culture of plain shame, an actual flight percentages, percentage of air miles travelled by Swedes is actually going down, partly as a result. So the idea of eco-confessions would be actually just thinking about our own activities and how they contribute to this crisis. It's easy for us to bemoan this crisis that's engulfing us all. But we're all part of it, and it's impossible to live in the modern world without being part of it. I mean, the, the... I mean, it's uh, the simpler when you think and step back a bit and you look at the way we live, things we take for granted, just flushing a lavatory. In, in the modern world, which is short of water, England may not be, but many parts of the world are, modern sanitation systems, which involve flushing gallons and gallons of water down a toilet every time you pee, um, is absurd. I mean, it's just an absurd system. Flushing away all the urea... Uh, that comes out in our urine about seven kilograms per year each person is producing meanwhile we flush that away meanwhile we have huge factories creating urea fertilizer to put on agricultural fields from nitrogen in the air and huge amounts of energy required to make it by the harbour bosch process um so uh, the slightest thing we do is contributing to this and we take most of these things for granted So this idea that came up in conversation with Karen of eco-confessions was one way I thought that we could, you know, become aware. Now, obviously, there's no point plunging us all into deep, impenetrable guilt and gloom because that's disempowering. Uh, So there has to be a way of, of, of becoming aware of what we're all doing that can be empowering and and helpful in our lives. Now, I w- was interested to talk to you about it because you're a kind of confessor. I mean, you're a psychotherapist. In some ways, psychotherapy has taken on the role that was traditionally taken in the Roman Catholic Church by confession and confessors. Um, so I wonder what you think of this idea. Yeah, I mean, it is very fascinating. And in fact, some psychotherapists, notably Susie Orbach, um, have tried to write about this in relation to the climate crisis and um, particularly um, in relation to Extinction Rebellion, um, and are, are putting forward um, the idea that um, so-called negative feelings are actually a crucial part of a new kind of way of living, because it's only when you um, undergo the negative feelings, not so they destroy you, um, or make you want to deny them or be distracted from them, because that's the great risk, that you feel something terrible like guilt, and then it just sort of paralyzes you. Um, which of course is very common in the Christian tradition <laughs> um, uh, when people um, looking look at it in that way um, but nonetheless um, if you can tolerate the negative feelings um, in order that they can be kind of kind of catalyze a new way of life um, uh, they can become a source of inspiration as well as um, facing reality full-on you might say by seeing exactly how you engage with the environment as you describe um, then it's possible they might become agents of change. And that's that's the way you try and do it in psychotherapy. Um, you know, one definition of neurosis um, is that you prefer 
um, a sort of what feels like a manageable set of bad feelings for fear of what would happen if you exposed yourself to the full panoply of feelings in life that they would overwhelm you you know so you I don't know you you go back as it were to see whether the front door is locked um, several times before you actually leave the house and because it's better as it were to be worried about that one thing um, that threatens your security than to expose yourself to the full range of um, possibilities um, that your security might be under threat um, you know all sorts of ways actual and imagined um, so you know we need to be careful not to become neurotics I think in this process it's a, it's a key key problem actually um, but nonetheless, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned about plastic and I, I understand that one one way in which in my household where we have um, actually changed um, the way we behave to some small degree, at least, um, is in relation to consumption of meat. Um, you know, we um, we had quite a, a, a critical moment where actually not so much um, realising the impact of um, particularly, you know, sheep and cows on the environment, um, but just the meat industry and the way it brutalises animals. Mm. And we just kind of reached a critical moment where we said, OK, look, we're not going to become strict vegans or strict vegetarians, but we are basically not going to have meat in the house. Um, and we, you know, got a couple of cookbooks and so on, had to re-educate ourselves a bit. Um, but a year or two on, don't even really notice it now. Hmm. Um, and occasionally we'll have meat at a restaurant or if it's offered us um, when we go out. Um, and, you know, that um, it's a small thing, but I guess if that sort of thing did scale up. Um, similarly, you know, we have um, almond milk, um, which we use for nearly everything. Um, and... Um, you know, because uh, again, the the, the the impact of cow herds on the on the environment. Um, so, it's not enough to save the planet, um, but um, it is maybe a little example, at least, of how um, being quite horrified actually by a kind of full exposure to the meat industry um, did actually lead to some behavioural change, at least. Mm. Well, in our household, we have a very similar policy to yours. We we don't have meat in the house except once a year. We have a goose or a turkey for Christmas. But uh, we do eat it occasionally when we go out to dinner or in restaurants. And I personally, when I do that, prefer to eat either organically farmed animals where the welfare standards are higher or animals that have lived free, like pheasants or deer, um, as opposed to... I mean, what for me is the most horrific is the factory farming, and that's the worst in terms of methane and... Um, emissions and, and environmental um, negative environmental impact um, so I think a lot of people are doing that, that's why there's been such a big rise in veganism, I mean now almost every supermarket and, and restaurant has vegan products and a few years ago they didn't they did have vegetarian ones but it's gone further um, so I think that is an example of a lifestyle change as a result of this awareness um, but the when when I first did my carbon footprint, I was very into low energy bulbs, and you know I got refitted our house with low energy bulbs, made a real point of doing that. Um, but then when I did the carbon footprint, and I realised the low energy bulbs would that would change my impro impact by about two percent, whereas if I gave up one intercontinental flight, it would make you know a hundred percent difference to my um, carbon footprint. It would. It's so massive. Um, so I think, in part, it involves getting things into perspective. Otherwise, it can become mere tokenism. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe there's another element as well, which I don't know quite how this will make a, a scale difference, but certainly you see it at the level of individual um, psychology, um, which is that um, often when people are mentally ill, um, they're very trapped, you might say, um, in um, their own world. Um, they can't uh, really, they don't really know how to relate to other people around them. Um, and sometimes this is called um, paranoid schizoid functioning, um, but which basically means that you, you live a very kind of withdrawn and isolated life. Um, and that it's the paranoid bit refers to the fact that when um, you do sense that, as it were, there's other lives around you, it provokes a paranoid response. You, you go into essentially a sort of fight or flight um, mode. Um, and, and what's required um, to move beyond that often um, is, um, in a way, giving up a sense of your own omnipotence. Um, because um, to feel that you can live a life where you're completely in control of things um, is to live far too omnipotently. Mm. Um, it is to live as if you can control everything. Um, and uh, But letting go of that, involves what in psychotherapy is called depressive functioning, um, which basically means recognising your limits um, and uh, uh, in, in your fantasy life, uh, realising that you, you, know, you have to expose yourself to, to the world around you. Um, and that can be um, troubling or deflating uh, because you're giving up um, the fantasy that actually you can control your whole life. Um, but of course, on the other side of the depressive functioning comes the realisation that there's actually other lives around you, there are other people around you. And so something like maybe love can come in um, where you are able to relate much more richly and much more fully. Um, and now this happens um, to individuals um, uh, perhaps, you know, who have been seriously ill, or maybe it's just part of our developmental process, actually, and um, that we tend to move from periods of, uh, of in our life, like when we were very young, where we have fantasies that we're completely in control, because when I'm hungry, I imagine food and food miraculously appears, and we have no idea that it's our mother or father feeding us. Um, and then we realise that um, we don't actually control our food and we scream and fight and go through various rages as tiny children, this kind of more depressive mode. Um, but then if we can resurface from the other side of that, we realise there's actually a mother and a father to relate to. And so our world grows. And I just wonder whether part of what is good about encouraging eco-confession would be that it encourages us to kind of give up on some of the fantasies which we share at a cultural level that we can control the world ad infinitum just fr through the better use of technology, for example, or developing mm. new technologies. Um, it, it's going to require um, a troubling phase, um, a depressive phase, um, where we feel that maybe the future we'd all hoped for is not going to materialise. But on the other side might be a future that we never even fully imagined um, because um, by limiting our own control um, of the world, our own, as it were, slightly omnipotent uh, demands on the world, you know, as whereas, as you say, I can fly to Australia tomorrow if I want to, thank you very much, um, that actually a new kind of reality might grow, a new way of life might grow from it. You know, if the microcosm of our own inner development matches the macrocosm of our cultural development, then maybe that would be the case. And so eco-confession wouldn't just be about um, dealing with our difficulties now, but actually might become a way of life, might be um, a path into the future. Yes, I, I, think, I think that's a very... 
yes, I think it could be, actually. Um, you see, I think it could lead to changes in behaviour. I mean, at least in my own case, uh, the awareness of, of the impact of flying has made me feel think twice about... I haven't stopped doing it. Uh, I was very impressed by the fact when Rowan Williams was Archbishop of Canterbury, he spent a whole year without any flights at all, just travelling by train in Europe. He couldn't go to America or Australia or anything. Um, but reducing, uh, becoming aware of it, uh, I think is the first step. And then we can also do things like the last flight I went on. It was a British Airways flight to Italy. And it was a kind of orgy of single-use plastic. They brought a lunch and, and you know, the, the tray, with the, the thing it was on, the containers, the knives, the forks, the glass, a whole lot. Single-use plastic. I mean, a huge quantity from just one flight. I wrote to them about it, you know, saying, you know, this is appalling, and they hadn't replied. Um, but at least if some... There are things that... Some, we, tiny things we can do like that. But it does involve reimagining the way our whole society works. Um, and not just making Britain carbon neutral by 2050 or whatever the goal is, um, because we're still exporting our manufacturing to China and other places. So a lot of the pollution and, and, and even these data farms, you know, with huge amounts of energy used for bitcoins and for web searches and for YouTube and stuff, we sort of outsourced all that. So even if Britain became carbon neutral, a lot of our activities are simply exporting these things to the rest of the world. I think becoming more aware with sort of like footprint calculations or flow sheets or some like we do tax returns every year uh, and you actually have to become aware of these things. Something like that would help to raise our awareness and would help to change our behaviour, I think. And maybe also it would do something else. Again, the sort of psychotherapist in me wonders whether it would require not just an examination of what we're consuming, but uh, an examination of our desire itself. You know, what do we want from life? Um, Because I think part of the genius of capitalism um, and the genius of uh, materialism um, is that um, it recognises that human beings want more and more and more and more. Um, but it's very successfully channeled it into more and more consumption. You know, so you want your flight and then you want your meal on your flight and you want, you know, to have it here and now immediately, mm. which is the kind of desire behind mm. um, the orgy of plastic consumption, as you mm. so vividly put it. Um, but if we were to examine our desire through this process of things like eco-confession, we might realise, for example, that our deeper desires aren't actually really very well satisfied by just more and more consumption um, and that um, our desire um, as it were wants just not sort of more and more in a sort of flat sense but maybe wants more and more in a kind of deep sense um, and that uh, part of say the appeal of things like meditation um, which also are having um, a kind of cultural renaissance um, at the same time as um, we get more and more worried about the environment and maybe what that is about is about understanding how people are also wakening up to desire can be satisfied in different ways, um, say by contemplation. Um, maybe also, you know, you get into a virtuous spiral where because you were traveling more slowly, um, maybe even by walking, um, uh, you know, we've talked about pilgrimage many, many times, but maybe even by walking, you start to realize that there are pleasures as it were right in front of you as you walk from the cops into the open field. 
um, which you just not even realise you were there when you were flying right over the top of them, either in a plane or on a train. Mm. Um, so I don't know, maybe that is a bit too much to hope for, but I certainly, I mean, I, well, again, at a purely confessional level, um, you know, I realise how much um, I had lost contact um, with um, the, the the countryside around me, which I think I must have had as a child, you know, even 30 or 40 years ago, because we did play in the woods. Um, I lost that by sort of madly travelling around on trains and planes, um, or even sort of cycling, which I do more and more. Um, there's something tremendous about rediscovering just what, how much the spirit of a place can change in just a few minutes, mm. which you get with walking. So th- this is speaking to a sort of speaking to my desires. To come back to my main point, speaking to my desires, but realizing that maybe my desires can be satisfied in in very very different ways, and not just cajoled on this kind of capitalist treadmill um, that consumes more and more and more in a desperate attempt to please them. Yes, but I suppose one way of doing that would be, you know, positive psychology is the study of what makes people happy and what increases well being and. And the findings of positive psychology, which I discuss in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, um, you know, include the practice of gratitude. So just by making a list every day of things for which one is grateful, um, uh, you know, people become happier. I do myself. I, I find... You know, so there are certain lifestyle things or practice, spiritual practices um, which increase life satisfaction at no cost to the environment and indeed at no cost to oneself either in terms of monetary expenditure or carbon footprint. And it's a measurably successful way of people making people feel more connected, uh, happier, more satisfied. Um, So part of it might be the promotion of, of spiritual practices or at least positive psychology practices, um, which increase the sense of satisfaction and connection, and uh, leave uh, and make us all less vulnerable to the blandishments of uh, materialist advertising and and, and uh, consumerism. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I can see that. I, I the psychoanalyst in me though also wants to complement that with the fact that tragedy and crisis and loss and experiences of death. Um, I think are part of life too um, and um, we're going to see more and more of that I think um, over the next years um, and developing the capacity to tolerate that um, uh, to um, undergo the suffering really um, or, or witnessing the suffering in others um, without running in the opposite direction without um in a way, even wanting it to be over too quickly, if I can dare to put it like that. And because um, I think, again, spiritual traditions all suggest, you know, that dark nights of the soul um, sort of have to be undergone in order for really something new to be born, to to be resurrected, Mm. um, for real transformation to take place. Um, And certainly, again, I don't know quite really what this means at a cultural level, and I'm very, you know, I feel... uh, very cautious saying it um, because it could well be it's the suffering of millions of people um, on a scale you know which is really hard to contemplate um, especially when it might be elsewhere because we live in a fairly wealthy part of the world so look I you know 
I partly even regret having said what I said, but nonetheless I did. But it is also true at the same time um, that part of what happens in psychotherapy is you go and see someone who has gone through that crisis, either because it precipitated in their own life and they recovered through therapy, or that the training, the psychotherapy training itself, in a way... um, uh, induces a crisis that you then go through so that you can know that you, it can be survived and you can sit with someone accompany them as they're going through their crisis um, and as Donald Winnicott put it um, uh, be with them as they're um, going to pieces but stopping them completely falling apart and so this, there is something very true I think about uh, uh, facing um, you know the really negative feelings, the dark thoughts in something like, say, eco confession, as you say, um, that actually enables us to stay with what might unfold over the next few years, mm. um, and um, that and try and keep a mind about it, so we keep thinking, keep trying to work out, uh, you know, how to react to it, how to relate to it, um, rather than getting lost in kind of panics um, or you know what might well happen to warfare you know, out-and-out out, uh, destruction and so on, which is is not an unlikely uh, scenario we'd face as well, I think. No, no, I mean, um, it's uh, it, the first thing that would happen if warfare broke out would be some kind of cyber war. And, you know, it's relatively easy for cyber warfare people to just take out the whole internet. And, you know, now most people pay for everything by card, so the entire economy could be crippled in a matter of minutes with a skillful cyber attack. That would be just wave first phase. That would be the opening salvos of a new kind of war. Um, And it would make everyone instantly aware of how totally dependent we've become on these technologies that, in, in, in you know, electronic money, internet, you know, smartphones, all these things could just disappear very quickly. Actually, a breakdown of this technology in a non-warfare context, maybe because of a solar flare or something like that, could be hugely educational for us all to show how totally dependent we've become on these things. Um, so I think these things could help in raising our awareness and but obviously as you say that you don't want to get to the point of total disempowering gloom and depression because people are deeply depressed and not very effective at anything much until they've got out of the depression yeah i mean the one final thought which i have again a sort of psychotherapy thought um is that um you need to have a place in life for the dark times um, for, uh, you know, times of feeling depressed. And in particular, you need to have a place in life for death um, because that is part of life. Um, And when that's not given a place, actually then that's when people become neurotic and scared of death and so on. Um, And uh, the spiritual side of me um, feels that another really important part of uh, um, what we need to recover um, is a sense that... um, you know, the material side of life is just one aspect of life. Um, and it's maybe through the material world that um, a spiritual dynamic can be felt and known, um, the kind of inner life of all things. Um, and whilst sometimes this is sneered at um, as if um, what you're advocating is kind of pie in the sky when you die, um, uh, and that is a risk, you know, um, as if this life doesn't really matter because it's going to be all right in the next life. Um, I'm not saying that. But there is something, I think, about knowing there's more to life 
than just the material reality that actually can make you less possessive of your material things. Um, it can make you, um, as it were, happy uh, uh, with less material things because you know there's more to life than just the sort of stuff you've got or the stuff you can control. Um, William Blake put it rather beautifully when he said, um, he who binds to himself the joy does the limited life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Um, and there's something about being less possessive with our material stuff that actually opens up um, the kind of spiritual reality that's around us. Um, and so I, I again feel somehow um, awakening to the more than the material, moving beyond the material conception of things, um, is going to be really important, um, not just to sort of console us um, when we're facing things like death um, and being able to give a place to death in life, um, but also because it might actually, again, create a kind of virtuous spiral where we want less of the material stuff because our desire is reorientated once more to spiritual realities, which, of course, is what most humans before the modern period have done anyway. And when you look back to the medieval world, or to mm. indigenous cultures and so on, they're much more alert to living in relation to spiritual realities. Um, and so, you know, that might be another really important facet of this whole um confession that we have to kind of go through examination of our desires giving up on things facing um what feels like a limitation of life yes absolutely and part of the thing that we i'd certainly include in my confession in a more general cultural sense not as a personal responsibility but a collective one is the way we through um you know colonialism imperialism neoliberalism and indeed Christian missionary activity, have actually ignored these other traditions in the world, treated them as contemptuously childish, um, you know, backward, superstitious, and now swamped, or tried to swamp them out with smartphones and social media and all the modern things that we have in the Western world. Um, So just when we most need these other voices... We're actually silencing them, as in the Amazon and elsewhere. Um, so that, again, is part of our collective activity. I mean, part of my eco-confession would be buying things that may have furthered the activities of deforestation in the Amazon or, or in Borneo or you know, through having palm oil in products and that kind of thing. I mean, we're all part of a vast consumer a neoliberal system which is destroying the planet and it's very hard to detach oneself from it so we're all in part responsible but there are also ways that perhaps we can listen beyond just the pure consumption of stuff from the amazon as a world to regain yes. that kind of lost wisdom as you're well, saying that's, that's that's one of the points and it comes back to a point we've often discussed about regaining a kind of sense of spiritual connection um re- returning to a, a sense of greater connection with the living world around us yeah i mean i feel completely convinced that a sort of re-enchantment a sort of recovery of spiritual reality is a really fundamental part of this it's maybe a hard part of it because it's not just about saying we need to do this or develop a new technology but i think if doing things and the new technology is going to be sustainable um uh, it's going to have to be you know it's going to be a transformation of our way of life that seems to me to be completely clear and transforming yes. it in the sense that is expanding and growing 
but in a spiritual direction that seems to me to go with the current of human desire rather than to feel that we've got to sort of try and shut things down, which never actually works because it just, again, to use a psychotherapeutic idea, the repressed just returns Mm. um, and probably in worse forms. I think what you've just said expresses the vision we share and which is the basis of many of our conversations, in fact. Yeah, yeah. 